Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Pastor Kevin taught last week the end of chapter 6 into verse 1 of chapter 7, did a great job. If you were here, you heard that. If not, I encourage you to go on the website or the podcast app and listen to it called A Better Yoke and just a powerful word. I was here taking many notes and I've just, man, my heart was just encouraged. So um, grateful for Pastor Kevin and his, and his teaching last week. Second Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse two, Paul continues on and says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if, any, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. You may be seated. You know, one of the things that I get most excited about when it comes to youth missions 
and our youth going down to Mexico is for them to see how other people throughout the world and other parts of the world seem to have nothing and yet have everything in Christ. I've been to Mexico many times in my life, probably close to 15 times doing short-term mission teams. I've been to Belize, I've been to Uganda and other parts of the world. And the thing that sticks out to me is when I come across believers in these other countries is that they have a joy that is regardless of their circumstance. I've been, like I said, to what is Mexico probably 15 times. And there's an area there in Juarez that uh, we, it's called Bejo Horizonte, a beautiful horizon. And we would go very poor community, pallet homes, um, just, just the poorest of the poor. And we would do, we would lay concrete and we would build houses and come alongside the believers there in that area and encourage them and play soccer and all of that. I remember I was 14 when I was on, on a trip and we were out there at Bejo Horizonte and I said, I got to really use the bathroom. I got to go to the bathroom. I'm clearly, clearly I'm a 14 year old from the United States. There's got to be a bathroom somewhere. And they said, oh, there's a bathroom. Yeah, it's, it's over there. And it was uh, uh, this, this kind of pallet room. So there's like holes everywhere, right? Um, there's a chicken like right in, like in there too. I just remember the chicken. There was a toilet, but it was not connected to any plumbing. <laughs> and then I said, never mind. <laughs> I will hold it. Like, I didn't use the bathroom, right? Like, but it's interesting when I think about these stories, when I think about just the way that, you know, others live, is that when I come across believers, I'm like, how can you have joy in the midst of what I would deem a difficulty? (laughs) How do you have joy in the midst of maybe a trial in our lives? Where does this joy come from? That's what I want to look at today. Where does this joy come from? Can you just imagine for a second if we could have joy regardless of the circumstances or trials in our lives? Could you imagine that? You know, as Paul is continuing on in his letter to the church in Corinth, we see him in this passage talk about joy in the midst of trials. And this is fitting in the context of the whole letter. In verses two through seven are really just a summary of what we've been seeing the last six chapters as Paul has been defending the legitimacy of his ministry. So look at with me, verses two through four, one more time. He says, make room for us in your hearts. He says, we've wronged no one. This is the apostle Paul. We've corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. He says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. He says, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. So throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul, we know, is trying to reconcile with the believers in Corinth. They had this rift in their relationship. It started out good, but then there was this rift. And the, the believers in Corinth, they started questioning Paul's leadership. They said, Paul, you suffered too much. Paul, you're not an eloquent enough communicator and you have too much weakness in your life. And so Paul in this letter has been defending his ministry and he's been teaching them that strength comes through weakness. And chapter after chapter, he's been talking about suffering in his own life, trials in his own life, hardships in his own life. But here we get to chapter seven and verse four and he talks about joy. Look at the end of verse four of chapter seven. He says, I am overflowing with joy. 
And then after that, in verse 7, he says, I rejoiced even more. In verse 9, he says, I now rejoice. In verse 13, he says, we rejoice. And then in the last verse of verse 16, he says, I rejoice. So this passage is all about joy. And before we start, and we're like, we like joy. We want joy, right? Before we start like diving into, okay, where do we find this desired joy from and at? Let me take a minute and see where it is not found. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is very important. Joy is not found in our circumstances. Let me say that again. Joy is not found in our circumstances. But how often, if we're honest, how often do we think that if I just had this job, then I would have joy? Right? If I just had this boyfriend or this girlfriend or this husband or wife, then I would have joy. Right? Or if I just had enough money or had this ability or this opportunity, then I would have joy. We, we genuinely think if my circumstances would change, then joy could be found. But look at the end of verse 4 again. One more time. Paul says this. He says, I am overflowing with joy. He says this, in all our affliction. So here Paul is talking about a joy that comes not after affliction. Paul's talking about a joy that's not outside of affliction. No, no, no. He says joy can be found, church, in all our affliction. And so joy is not merely the reward for us after the trial. Right? Joy is, is not just what comes if we stay faithful in our suffering. Then the Lord will give us joy. No, no, no. I think of Nehemiah. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Someone said that joy is not merely the reward at the end of suffering. It's the strength that gets us through suffering. And so God doesn't replace our suffering with joy. No, no, no. Listen. Joy transforms our suffering. Joy transforms our suffering. If we're honest, though, we get into this mindset and we start to think that joy and sorrow cannot coexist. Right? We, we believe that like, we get into this falsy thinking that, no, I can't, there, there can't be joy and grief. But I believe it's the Lord's heart for us to see today that joy can be mixed in suffering. Pastor Josh has always said to me many times, joy and sorrow run on parallel tracks. Is that the quote, Josh? And that's always stood out to me. Because sometimes I'm just like, joy, 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 joy. I got the joy, 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 right down in my heart. Where? You know, whatever. You know, I'm just all about the joy, right? And I don't want to acknowledge the sorrow. But the reality is, in the life of the believer, in all of our lives, joy and sorrow are sometimes simultaneously there at the same time. And so we have to embrace joy and sorrow and even joy in the midst of sorrow. And, and this is true of us individually and collectively as a church. I think, I think for in, in my own life, a good example of this is five, about five years ago, I said goodbye to some really good friends of ours, Dave and Deanna Chafee. Dave and Deanna were, were really close friends to, to Mary and I, and they were on staff here um, for many years. And just we, we laughed together with them. We, we, we cried together. We, we visioned ministry together. We just, man, our, just our hearts, we just felt, you know, you have those people in your lives where, man, our hearts just kind of beat, the, you know, just similarly. We just love them, just have a deep fellowship with them. But then all of a sudden, God says, I'm going to remove you from Portland. I'm going to 
replant you to New Mexico. And oh man, I just remember it was a July day where we're here in the parking lot saying goodbye as they travel away and just tears, just knowing that I'm closing a chapter in my life never to return to that chapter again. Like there's a chapter in my life that is closed and I just remember the sorrow. Oh man, Dave, jolly Dave, I'm just not gonna see him every day, right? Like always just this big smile. Sorrow. But at the same time, almost in the same breath, there is this joy and this anticipation of what is God going to do? God, it wasn't just transplanting them to New Mexico just because they wanted to go serve their flesh and be in the sunshine, right? That would be jealousy on my end if that was the case. But no, God was doing something in their lives. God had stirred their hearts to start the 10th hour project. And we know fast forward, almost 80 or 90 students have already gone through their, their, through their program in just less than five years. So, so yes, there was tears, but also on that day five years ago, there was this excitement. God, what are you going to do? I think of... Paul, when he wrote in Romans chapter 12, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And you think about for our church even right now. So I give you an example of my own life and you guys have those examples of, of joy and sorrow running together at the same time. But how about in our church? You know, we have so much to grieve in our church right now. There's people in and out of the hospital. There's people in our church, and you've, if you're on the prayer chain, you know these things, diagnosed with cancer. Cancer is run, running through, through our church and some lives, and it's, and it's heartbreaking. We have people who have lost loved ones recently. I think of James in the back. He was playing bass this morning. just lost his sweet mom just last week. Like we, and that's just one story of this. So there's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of grief in our church right now. But at the same time, there's also many things to celebrate, right? There's, there's new life. There's children being born. I've already, I've done just in the last like two months, like already two baby dedications, one more next month. And like, and the, cup, the cute couple up here giving announcements, like they're having a baby, like Carlos and Colleen, like super excited about that. Pastor Kevin is going to be a grandpa. And like, you know, that's incredible, Right. Did you know that every week almost, like this is humbling and exciting that people are giving their life to Jesus in our church every week, right? There's new marriages, like there's a, Liam's getting married, right? Like, and Colton, like just so many people getting married and there's new jobs. Like Logan, who's playing drums, just was first service telling me about this amazing new job that he just got. And the list could go on and on. There's so much to celebrate. And listen, we're not called to pick and choose though, are we? We're not called to like, okay, this Sunday's the celebratory Sunday. Next Sunday's the sorrow Sunday. We'll be more somber. No, no, no. Paul says we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to do so simultaneously. Oh, Lord, give us strength. Right? So if you, let me just say this. If you're rejoicing right now in your life, you know, you, you hear those stories. Like if you're rejoicing, you, know, you don't have to hide the good that God is doing in your life. Like, that's a good thing. It needs to be celebrated. Now, now you should be sensitive to those, of course, that are, that are struggling, but you don't have to hide that God is doing an amazing work in your life. But also, if you're weeping today, can I just say this, that you don't have to feel like you're a burden just because maybe someone got a new job or someone's getting married. Like, like this is our role as a church together to carry both 
at the same time on the same Sunday because I can look in a row right now and be like, oh, this is, man, with them, it's great. The same row. And then, oh, they're going through heartache. The same row. And look at all these rows. <laughs> like, look at all these people. So again, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And so we see right away that joy is not found in circumstances. So where is joy found? Joy, church, is found in God who is with us in the midst of every circumstance. Look at verse five. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts within, fears, or conflicts without, fears within. Now we've learned a lot throughout this letter as Paul opens himself up, as he makes himself vulnerable. This is Paul's, one of Paul's most vulnerable letters that he ever wrote. He's been through a lot. We know this. He's been through affliction, pain, abandonment, attack, all kinds of trials. And here he even talks about conflicts and fears on the outside and on the inside. In other words, Paul's saying things are rough externally for me. Things are, are difficult internally. Everything, Paul's saying, is hard right now. Can you, have you ever been through seasons like that? Where you're just like, man, it is just heavy to breathe. You can, can you guys relate? Like, man, life is just difficult. But I want you to see this because this is so important. The next two words that come off of his pen in verse 6 change everything, okay? Yes, life is hard. Yes, life is difficult. But in verse 6, he says, but God... <laughs> These two are some of the most powerful words that we can put together in the English language. And these two words, though small and seemingly insignificant, have the power to change anything and everything in our lives. And we see that all throughout the Bible. If you're reading through the Bible in the year, um, you know this. You're in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and we're in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But Abraham and Sarah, right, they couldn't have kids. But God gave them a child. Joseph was sold unjustly into slavery, but God used him to save a nation. David was a little shepherd boy, but God made him a king. Mary was just a teenage girl, but God used her in a, to change the world. And Jesus was killed and crucified by his enemies, but God raised him from the dead. So church, no matter how hard your life gets, no matter how difficult the journey of life is for you, let these two words remind us that when God shows up, anything is possible. And maybe that's a word for some of you this morning. Maybe you're feeling exhausted in life, but God will give you new strength. Maybe you're feeling anxious about something in your life. Let, let God be your peace. Maybe you're just feeling in need and you have this need in your life God is your provider. Romans 15, Paul would say, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I love that verse. No matter what it is that we're going through, may we allow him to fill us with all joy, Paul says, and peace. It's available. So whether you're on a mountaintop this morning, right, the new job, the baby, the marriage, the new home, or you're in a valley, cancer, disappointment, job loss, 
you all can have joy. Because joy is not found in circumstance. Joy is found in the God who is with us in every circumstance. Now, joy is a gift. Not only that we receive joy, but it's also something that we need to cultivate. And so the rest of this chapter, Paul shows us how to cultivate joy. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Joy is cultivated, number one, through reconciliation. And as we, as we go through this, you need to remember, again, the, the story of the church in Corinth. Paul had planted this church some years back. He stayed with them. He lived with them for a year and a half. He leaves Corinth. He goes to plant other churches. But as he leaves, sin creeps into the church. And things get really messy. And we talked a lot about that last year in our study through 1 Corinthians. The church was divided over who their favorite pastor was. The church was getting drunk on the wine that was used for communion. There was one man sleeping with his stepmom. Like sexual immorality was just running rampant. Again, things got messy. And so Paul wrote them 1 Corinthians to correct them. It's a corrective letter. But unfortunately, they didn't like that letter. They didn't respond to it well. And so Paul, because he was their spiritual father, and like any spiritual father would, he went and visited them. And he calls that visit a painful visit. It didn't go well. And so then Paul, again, like a good father, doesn't give up on his spiritual kids. He writes them yet another letter, and he calls this letter a letter of tears. We don't have, you know, this letter, um, but this letter was written by Paul, and it was delivered by a co-laborer named Titus. And then Paul, after Titus went to go drop it off, Paul was supposed to meet up with Titus in a, in a city of Troas to find out, hey, hey, how do the Corinthians respond to this letter of tears? But then Titus didn't show up. And so Paul then goes on to Macedonia to wait for Titus, and he's anxious. How are the Corinthians going to respond to this letter? And that's where we pick up in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 5. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul's waiting there. He said some really hard things. Not just once, not just twice, like three times. And I love that he's there, he's exhausted, he's anxious, he's afraid, but God comforts him. And how does God comfort Paul? It says, through Titus. And so in Paul's time of need, God came through for him and provided Titus to be the comforting presence of God in Paul's life. I love that. And this is how God works in you and I. You know, Pastor Kevin has often said that you and I are Jesus with skin on. This is how he designed us to be, that we would care for and minister in the ways of Jesus to one another. And that's what Paul or Titus was to Paul here. He was a comfort. And not just through his presence, Paul says, but also by the message, by the report in which Titus brought back to Paul. You know, Paul wanted to know, hey, Titus, how did the, the Corinthians respond to that letter of tears? Like, I worked really hard on it. I labored over it. And Titus finally shows up. Paul's like, and? And, he's, and Titus like, they received it well. 
They received it well. Like they're mourning over their sin. They're longing for you, Paul. Like they desire for you, Paul. They're no longer bashing you. They're like, wait, we want to we see Paul again, right? This church is called reconciliation. And for this reason, Paul says at the end of verse 7, he says, I rejoice even more because of this. Paul is rejoicing because of the reconciliation that he has now experienced with the church in Corinth. And that's because, again, reconciliation cultivates joy. Reconciliation cultivates joy. And we know this is true because, think about it this way, think about it in the opposite. Unresolved tension in relationships stills the joy, doesn't it? Robs you of joy. You know that in marriage, oh, when there's tension, you're going to bed mad, you wake up the next day, you're, just, you're not feeling very joyful, are you? A friendship, a coworker, you know there's a tension there, robs you of joy, right? And we know these things. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, like, like if you have ought with someone, like a believer, like man, that's a robbing of joy. Hey, before you even go into church and offer your sacrifice and do all of these things, go back to that person and make things right, right? And then come back and worship. Why? So that the joy through reconciliation can be restored. And maybe that's just a word for some of you today. Maybe there is a rift in a relationship and there's tension and your joy is lost. Maybe the Lord, maybe just pray about this. Maybe the Lord would just have you go to that person or send a text or a phone call or, or maybe just start the praying process. Lord, would you heal this rift? Would we experience the joy of reconciliation? Secondly, joy is cultivated through repentance. Remember again, Paul wrote them that letter of tears. Now pick up in verse eight. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So again, Paul wrote, writes in this letter calling out their sin. And while that letter caused them sorrow, Paul says it, it led you to repentance. And when Paul here he makes this important distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You notice that? He says worldly sorrow eventually leads to death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And I want to look at that just for a brief second today. Because worldly sorrow starts with self-pity. Okay, there's a difference here between contrasting worldly sorrow and, and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow starts with pity, right? It says, man, I'm such an idiot. Oh, I can't believe I messed up again. I did this again. And, and worldly sorrow just has a way of just beating yourself up. Like, ah, oh, dummy me, all of these things. Godly sorrow, right, it still acknowledges what you did, but it's more of a self-awareness. It calls sin, sin. Like what I did was wrong. It, I recognize that it hurt people, right? It, it's, it's acknowledging what it is. But then worldly sorrow starts with self-pity, but then it moves to condemnation. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm an idiot and I but I deserve that punishment, right? Like I deserve this guilt. I deserve this shame. 
And while worldly sorrow goes from self-pity to condemnation, godly sorrow is grounded in conviction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, that, and it's so important for us to understand the, the two different. They're, they're way two different things. Condemnation is from the enemy. The conviction is from the Holy Spirit. The enemy wants to condemn you, right? Guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're being pushed down. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, wants to convict you and where condemnation leaves you right there condemned, conviction by the Holy Spirit leads you to the Savior where you can experience grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. So you have condemnation and you have conviction. So what do you do now, though? You're aware of this sin, right? What do I do with the condemnation or the conviction? Well, worldly sorrow is motivated by guilt, oh man, I, I deserve to be punished and I deserve the beating and whatever, all these things. And, and so we say, well, I'm gonna motivate myself by guilt and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not gonna mess up again. I'm gonna try harder next time and all of these things. You make these sweeping promises and, 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 and you, you can't keep those promises and it doesn't work, right? It lasts for a day, but it doesn't work. But with godly sorrow, we're not motivated by guilt. We're motivated by grace, like we're aware of our sin. The Holy Spirit has convicted us that we have fallen short, but we see in that moment a God who has compassion on us. He's a God who's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he's a God who forgives us of our sins by the blood of Jesus. And so we have this godly sorrow where we experience grace. It's just an amazing thing. And with worldly sorrow, again, it not only starts with self-pity that moves to condemnation where we feel guilty, but then it ultimately leads to death. That's where it goes because it doesn't have the power to change you. But godly sorrow, once we acknowledge our sin and we feel convicted of our sin and we receive this grace, Paul says that it leads to repentance. Grace leads to life change. Not life change leads to grace. Don't ever get those backwards. It's the grace of God that motivates you to live for God. And again, these two are very different, and that's why it's important to understand this. One leads to death. The other leads to repentance, to life. Let me ask you this morning, what is repentance? What is repentance? It's, a, it's important that we understand what we're talking about. You know, the, the Hebrew word for repentance is tshuva. It literally means to turn. I was telling someone after the first service, we don't really use the word repent often. So what is it in our English language? The Greek word uh, for repentance is metanoia. It means to change your mind. So in other words, repentance, according to the Bible, is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. So if I'm going in this way and we know that, it, that, it's, that it's against the Lord and we know it's a wrong direction, repentance would be to stop in your tracks, to turn around and to go towards Jesus. So as a Christian, the call of repentance is again to turn from your sin and to turn towards your Savior. And let me just say this, repentance is a beautiful thing. I know you're not sold on that. Like I, I get it. Some of you, you're like, John the Baptist, not my favorite Bible character, right? Why? Because his, his message was repent, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand and all of these things. Listen, repentance is not a scary thing. Repentance is not a, 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 an evil thing or a harsh thing. Repentance is a beautiful thing. 
I, th- I think of when my kids were younger, and I've got three kids in the home right now, and when they were younger, if they were running towards a busy street, right, what would I do as a loving father? Stop! <laughs> Turn around. Come back. Listen, that's not a harsh thing, is it? No, that's a loving thing. I am calling them out of love to stop the direction in their life where they're going because it will destroy them and to turn around and come back to safety. And over and over again throughout the Bible, the call of repentance is to return to the Lord. Why? So that he might heal you so that he might forgive you, so that he might build up what's been broken, so that he might reconcile you back to the Father. Reconciliation, our relationship with God restored so that we would experience what the psalmist would say in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence came across this little saying. I'm not sure if it was a song, but Spurgeon had quoted it, and I don't know who originated this saying, but it said this. I really liked it. Repentance is to leave the sin that we had loved before and showing we are grieved by it by doing it no more. Just very simple. Some of you today might need to repent for the very first time. That might be your call the call for you. Some of you are living your life and you're headed to the busy street and you don't see the cars coming. And don't let repentance be a bad word for you. Let it be a word of love towards you. You have a loving father right now and maybe you don't know Jesus and you're here today. And you don't, maybe, maybe you got dragged to church. I don't know. You're here for the first time. I, I, I don't know your story potentially, but the call for you would be stop where you're going. You're on a path that leads to destruction. And God, out of his love and mercy, is saying, stop and turn around. And the word for that is repent. Look where your life has gotten you. Turn from it and turn to Jesus. But all of us, we're all called to repentance. Let me say this. Repentance is not just a one-time thing that you do at the beginning of your walk with Christ. It's not, I repented of my sin. No, repentance is a constant for us, that we are daily confessing our sin, repenting, and walking in the forgiveness and grace of God. Not making up for our past mistakes, but turning around and saying, God, I'm gonna pursue you and I'm gonna walk in your grace. I'm gonna walk in the forgiveness that is already ours. Let's keep going. So Paul is saying, your sorrow, Corinth, produced repentance. That's a great thing. And then in verse 11, he describes what this repentance looked like for them. He says, for behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, Corinth, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness, but the earnestness on your behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. So Paul's saying through this letter of tears, Corinth, although it was a hard letter, I wrote it out of love so that it would produce these things. And all of this, he's showing us that repentance, church, leads to joy. It does. And we see this throughout the Bible. 
Repentance leading to joy. I think of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a very popular psalm where David is crying out to the Lord. And King David has repented, you know, or he's committed, I should say, adultery. He's committed murder. He's tried to cover it up. But David doesn't repent on his own. It took, you know, the prophet Nathan to come to him and say, hey, here's your sin. I'm exposing you. And out of love, look what you've done, David. And so in Psalm 51, we have David's response to this. And he comes before the Lord and he confesses his sin in in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned to the Lord. So not only is it hurtful, your sin hurtful towards other people, but it's rebellion against God. And, And David confesses his sin there. And then he gets to verse 12, and I love this, where he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy. His confession and repentance led to a restoration of joy. In church, that's what we can experience too. And that's just one example in Scripture where you see godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. You think of Judas in the New Testament and Peter. They both, one denied the Lord and one betrayed the Lord, right? They both had grief over their sin. They both were led to tears. One led to death and one led to new life. And as we repent, repentance doesn't lead to sorrow. Repentance leads to joy. And and, And maybe it's a word the Lord would minister to our hearts today that if there is sin in our lives, and maybe there's sin that you're hiding, maybe there's, there's sin that you're denying or you're avoiding or you're justifying, the call today would be to confess your sin because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. But don't just stop at confessing your sin because confession can be cheap sometimes. The Bible would call us to repent of our sin, to stop what we're doing and to turn around and run towards the Savior. And there we receive and we, and we bathe ourselves in the forgiveness and grace that God has given us. Amen? So joy is cultivated through reconciliation. Joy is cultivated through repentance. And lastly, joy is cultivated through encouragement. Think about it this way. You know, the church in Corinth was messy. <laughs> They're getting drunk on communion wine. They're sleeping around. They're dividing. They hate Paul. <laughs> what does Paul do? How does he respond? He encourages them. Look at verses 13 through 16. He says, for this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. He says, I rejoice that in everything I have this confidence in you. You see all the encouragement going on there? Paul's like, I'm boasting like to Titus about Corinth and I'm boasting about Corinth to Titus. <laughs> like Titus, like, like man, the church in Corinth is messy, but I love these guys. 
Like Titus, sure, like, sure, it's, it's been hard. And sure, Titus, and I've written, you know, letters of tears and I've had painful visits, but God's still doing a work in them. Like my heart's for them. And then, and then to Titus, like to Corinth, for, to Corinth about Titus, like Paul's telling the church, like, hey, Titus is amazing. You're going to love him. Paul's just here, he's encouraging everybody. And we see in verse 16 that all of this encouragement cultivates joy. Cultivates joy. Let me say this this morning as we get ready to close. Is most of the people sitting in your row right now need encouragement. I need encouragement. Like life's been hard, right? Maybe this week or this month or this year. And this is a simple and easy and yet powerful thing to do. Because imagine if we all left here after the service and we said to ourselves, we want to cultivate joy by encouraging people. What if we all had that heart and that mindset? Again, I want to call you to action this week as a church. Can I do that? Give you homework? (laughs) Like give myself homework? Like encourage, maybe seek out one person this week that you can encourage. Let it lead to joy. I've been trying to get better and better at, like when someone comes to my heart and my mind to send them a quick text. Because I know how much that just means to me. Even if it's simple, like, hey, just thinking about you. Have a great day. I know, man, when I receive that, I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord. Right? So like, who would that, who would those people be or that person be? Like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I see God working in your life. Wow. If you said that about me, like, praise the Lord. Like, I'm glad. Like, you mean so much to me. Like, I just want to pray for you. Like, that'll go a long way. Isn't that what we want, though? Don't we want to cultivate joy? Yeah? Like, okay, all right. Like, I said that first service, too, and everyone's like, mm-hmm. Listen, you know why we want to cultivate joy as a church? It's because this world can only offer us temporary happiness. And the the desire for us should have have the joy. We want the joy of the Lord. Amen? Listen, there are four quick ways that you could kill joy in your life from this text. You could focus on your problems more than God. You you don't resolve tension in relationships. And you let that pain to fester into bitterness. And you critique rather than you encourage others. That's how you kill joy. But of course because you said amen earlier. You don't want to kill joy. You want to cultivate it. So what would we do? We would focus on God more than our problems. <laughs> that we would be quick to reconcile broken relationships in our lives. That we would allow sorrow to lead us to repentance and that we would encourage everyone around us instead of critiquing. And always remember this, that joy is not found in your circumstances, but it is found in God who is with you in every circumstance. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the joy that you offer us. We thank you, Lord, that we have your presence with us every day, right now, and that we can experience the joy of the Lord being our strength. Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray, God, just for my brothers and sisters in this room this morning, that if anyone has been robbed of joy, God, that you would call them back to your heart, that you would just call them back. Maybe they're pursuing joy 
in other areas of life and they're coming up empty, I just pray that by your love and grace, you would woo them back to yourself. That we would experience your presence where your presence is fullness of joy. Lord, if there are things in our lives that you're convicting us on, I pray, God, that we would be quick. We would be people who are quick to repentance, quick to stop and turn back to you, to walk in the grace that you've given to us already in Jesus, to walk in the forgiveness that is already ours. Lord, do this deepening work in us, I pray. this morning and you've never committed your life to Jesus you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian and you're hearing about joy and the joy of the Lord and, and you've been trying and you've been seeking and you've been searching you've been trying on different things like their outfits trying to find you joy and you're coming up empty and God is speaking to you this morning Say, let me be your joy. Let me be your joy. But you can't experience the joy of the Lord without having the presence of the Lord, without saying yes to Jesus, without repenting of your sin, saying, I've messed up. I've gone in a wrong direction in my life and I am coming to Jesus. And I'm saying, God, my life is yours. If that's you, if you want to say yes to Jesus today. If you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to invite you right now to raise your hand. To raise your hand and say, I want to commit my life to Jesus. That you would experience the joy of the Lord. The presence of God. Reconciled to the Father. Again, I'll give you not in a rush. I just want to invite you right now to raise your hand and raise it up high and say yes to Jesus today. Say, I give my life to you. I've done it my own way and I don't want to fight you anymore. Give my life to Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Anyone else? If you want to know that you know that you know that you are saved newness of life is yours. One last opportunity to raise your hand and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace, the unmerited favor of God. Did you know that this joy that's available to us came at a great cost? Did you know that? Give it a great cross. The, the author of Hebrews would write this. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings to us so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the set shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And in this passage, there's so much there, but it gives us one reason in this passage that Jesus went to the cross. Like, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus endure shame? Why was he publicly humiliated? Why was he stripped of his clothes, mocked, beaten, whipped, all of those things? Why would he go through all of that? Because the author says of joy, of the joy that was set before him. because he was thinking of the joy that would be produced in you, of the joy of us being reconciled to himself. He endured it all because of joy. So church, just know that the joy of the Lord was costly, but Jesus made a way and he paid the cost. He paid the price. So again, no matter what it is that you're going through, it's possible for you to have joy in your life. Because joy is not found in circumstances, but in God who's with us in every circumstance. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.